our microbes are so important in defining how our immune system evolves and develops and how all of the things that we come into contact with in our environment, so what we eat, the pollutants that we experience, the, the medicines that we take, influence our health and influence the function of our genome. So because they are sort of at the core of everything, if you don't have a good understanding of what they're doing, it's very difficult to really meaningfully prevent disease. Well, James Kinross is a consultant surgeon specialising in the gut microbiome. He feels that we urgently need to rethink our relationship with our microbes. I'm Liz Earle and welcome to the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show. This is the podcast that helps us all have a better second half. And my mission is to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Now, I think you probably know by now, certainly if you're a regular listener, that I love talking about the gut. I wrote one of the very first consumer guides to the gut, the Good Gut Guide, researching that, gosh, nearly 10 years ago now. And it's been so fascinating to see this whole area of medicine just explode and how the gut is now linked to pretty much every single thing in the body. Well, James Kinross is somewhat of a kindred spirit. He's a senior lecturer in colorectal surgery and consultant surgeon at Imperial College London. He also leads a research team defining how the microbiome causes cancer and other chronic diseases of the gut. Now, in his book, Dark Matter, The New Science of the Microbiome, James explains the microbiome's enormous potential for helping us live well, but also that our modern lifestyles are putting us in grave danger. Are we irrevocably destroying ourselves from the inside through our diets, the war on bugs and the industrial world? And if so, what can we start doing now to work with our microbes to live better, healthier lives? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. James, it's such a pleasure to get to chat with you. As I mentioned in the intro, I love the gut. And I perhaps use the term, you know, gut microbiome in casual conversation quite a lot. But I guess we should make sure that we're all clear about what we're talking about. How do you describe what a microbiome is? So I suppose this is a good place to start, isn't it? A microbiome refers to all of the microscopic life forms that live within a niche. And it also refers to all of the things that they need to keep themselves healthy. 
So it doesn't just mean bacteria. When we think about microscopic life forms, particularly in the gut, I think that's what most people might think about. But it also means viruses, yeasts or parasites or any other microscopic life form that might reside within them. Right. Okay. So it's not just the the good gut bacteria that we talk about, but it's that whole microcosm, like little yeah. mini universe of life really going exactly on inside right. us. It's a sophisticated, it's a sort of, when you when you think of any kind of diverse ecosystem, it's it's pretty much the same. So if you think of a rainforest or you think about a barrier reef, for example, it's got a it's got a an interconnected series of life forms that all codepend on each other to to keep the the bigger health system operating, right? And it's the same with us, and mm. it's the same within us, and it's the same on us. So today we're probably, I suspect, going to have a gut centered conversation. But of course, when we talk <laughs> yes. about the microbiome. What we're really talking about is not just the gut. We're talking about the skin, the lungs. We're talking about our urogenital tracts. We're talking about the kind of other networks that we have that are all communicating constantly with our gut microbiomes. Yeah. This must have been fascinating for you as a medic because, you know, you you don't become a colorectal surgeon overnight. So you've presumably been working with the gut for for decades. And then kind of along comes the microbiome. What's your story and what's your journey in all of this? So my journey began in around 2005 when I did my PhD. And my PhD was trying to understand how the gut microbiome influences your chance of having a good or a bad outcome after having an operation. Uh, And at that stage, the microbiome was really just, I suppose, coming into um, the scientific lexicon. And we were beginning to understand the tools that we needed to analyze it and to measure it. And at that stage of my career, I was still in my training phase. I suppose I was fairly cynical about the value of nutrition, diet, and lifestyle factors in maintaining our health. And I thought Shame everything could on be, you. Well, yeah, I thought everything could be fixed <laughs> with a good old-fashioned operation. Uh, and of course, uh, how wrong I was. And and then so that's when my journey began. And my journey began really in trying to understand what these microbes were doing. And then it's it sort of escalated because the microbiome is it's so fundamental. It's, it's as fundamental as our genome in determining our health outcomes mm. um, that we've then, on my journey sort of progressed and not just to understanding what they're doing, but trying to understand how we can engineer or optimize the microbiome to try and improve health. So how do you use it as a, as a target, if you like, to try and help people mm-hmm. stay healthier? Well, you begin your book, Dark Matter, with quite a stark statement that the, quote, global pandemic of non-infectious diseases is arguably a greater threat to humanity than any caused by the communicable diseases. And if we are to meaningfully understand how we've reached this crisis, we urgently need to reappraise our relationship with our microbes. Well, we can dig into the various details during this conversation, but as a top line, what is it about microbes that puts them, you know, right at the epicenter of all this? Um, I'll try and give a short answer to that question, but it's kind of hard. But but the, 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 I suppose the scientific answer to your question is, is that our microbes are so important in defining how our immune system evolves and develops and how all of the things that we come into contact with in our environment, so what we eat, the pollutants that we experience, the, the medicines that we take, influence our health and influence the function of our genome. So 
because they are sort of at the core of everything, if you don't have a good understanding of what they're doing, it's very difficult to really meaningfully prevent disease. And, and what I meant in that opening statement is, is that if you, if you look at what's happened over the last 200 years in terms of human health, the change has been very, very profound. And in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, the thing that was most likely to kill you was pneumonia. And if pneumonia didn't kill you, it was TB. And if TB didn't kill you, it was more likely to be an infection in the gastrointestinal tract, so cholera, for example. But in the 21st century, those are not the things that kill us. They still kill people, of course, but they're not the things that cause most harm. The things that cause most harm are basically cardiovascular diseases or problems associated with obesity or diabetes. They're problems of the immune system. They're problems actually that don't necessarily kill us, but which trap us in a very expensive, awful state of poor chronic health, from which the only, mm -hmm. the only option for many people is to take very expensive medicines that don't cure the problem. They just keep you in a very profitable state of remission. Yeah. And so part of the reason I'm arguing is that we're trapped in a sort of 19th century way of thinking about bugs because the revolution that allowed that transfer to happen was based on the idea that bugs are bad. You know, all of these transformative ideas, which have been very, very important, of course, and they've saved a lot of lives, inevitably had an unintended consequence, which is that we veered mm -hmm. too far away from killing everything, you know, killing all known germs dead into actually not being able to potentiate and to grow out the really important bugs that we need to maintain our health, what we will call your symbionts, right? Or your mutualistic microbes that are really important for, 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 your, for, for your development and for your wellness. So that's really what I'm saying. And I do genuinely believe, by the yeah. way, that we are at a crisis point because what we're starting to see now is a declining fertility rate. You're starting to see an aging population suffering with really a, an unsustainable burden of, of chronic disease. And we don't have any meaningful solutions to it other than to keep the cycle going, which is just to keep giving more drugs. And so you, there, there's got to be there's got to be a different strategy, I think. Well, we will talk about that. And I really do want to drill into this question of sort of good bugs versus bad bugs and, and kind of getting that balance right. Yeah. Going back to the very beginning, though, to what extent is our gut microbiome set, if you like, from birth? And to what extent can we impact it one way or other across our lifetime? Is it something that's fluid and malleable? Yeah. So I think you asked me an important question at the beginning, which is what is a microbiome? And, and I would argue that a microbiome has a couple of other important components to it for its definition. The, the first is, is that it has an evolutionary relationship with its host. So that by that, what I mean is, of course, microbes were, were here before us, before humans, and but they're also they're evolving with us over the course of our lifetimes. And what it means is that those beneficial functions that they have are deeply ingrained, they're deeply embedded. And the second component is time. These things do evolve with us. And, and, and that's important because actually in our adulthood, the microbiome is relatively stable in terms of who is there. But in very early life and in late life, actually, it's a bit more dynamic. And those are the moments when it's either vulnerable or you can do something about it to improve the health of the person to whom it belongs. So to answer your question, um, as, as near as we, well, we, we think that when you're born, you're born pretty much sterile. So that means you're born without any microbes within you uh, and you haven't had any microbes on you until the moment you pass through your mother's birth canal. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, a sort of great colonization begins. 
Uh, and that's driven by lots of important events such as breastfeeding or, uh, you know, coming into contact with your siblings or then finally weaning onto solid foods. Mm -hmm. And by the age of about five, your microbiome has the construct of an adult, which means that all of the key players are there and they've got all of their key functions set. And then after that, they're pretty much set in stone until you hit your 70s. Now, the way I think about it is that really that, that relationship is, although it's fixed at quite a big level, at sort of structural level, at a, at a functional level, by which I mean, like, what are they doing? Actually, it's sort of, it's changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So these, these microbes are, are sort of fluctuating with your daily existence and with the daily rhythm and flow of your life. Uh, and with that might be with your sleep cycle. It might be with your menstrual cycle if you're a woman. It might be with your exercise regimen. It might be with your travel cycle. They are constantly adapting with you hour by hour to support you in whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. And what we also think is that probably the microbiome has a key role in determining your health before you're born. Wow. So the maternal microbiome, yeah. So the maternal microbiome is very important in determining the development and growth of the of the baby in utero and it's able to sort of signal to the baby through a process of small molecules that are able to cross the placenta and we call this what well, i call this orchestral signaling so you can think of it like a big old orchestra and it's got lots of different parts in the orchestra and it's playing this sort of symphony of music and at certain points in the development it will need bits of the orchestra to be loud and at other points it'll need it to be quiet and that orchestra sings a song that ebbs and it flows as you're developing. And of course, what we're arguing, or what I'm arguing is, is that the nature of that song is being eroded. The tune that it's playing is changing. And that's having generational effects on us, yes. which we can see, you know, at an evolutionary scale. That's extraordinary. I have never heard anybody talk about the microbiome pre-birth. And what you're saying obviously makes perfect sense. And this flow through the, the placenta into the growing child, presumably a, a pregnant woman then should be loading up on beneficial bacteria, having a diverse colony in her microbiome, keeping stress levels low, reducing cortisol spikes that could influence, you know, are, are these all things that can then actually influence a new person's and a new baby's microbiome when they're born? Well, I think, I think if you speak to any obstetrician or any midwife, that they will know lots about how to improve both the health of the mother and the health of the neonate through nutrition, through making sure that, you know, um, new mums aren't developing gestational diabetes, for example, or by making sure that the maternal health has improved. And we know from really good studies that mums experiencing inflammation during pregnancy, either caused usually by an infection, for example, can have important impact on the health of the baby, the developing baby. And we also know very obviously that pathogens during pregnancy can be really problematic. But what we don't think about really is improving the, the health of mutualistic bugs during, during pregnancy. And, and these are important for both the mum and for the baby. Now, doing all of the things that you've just described will help the developing gut microbiome and will, will help the internal microbiome. And I suppose microbiome science is explaining to us how. So how having optimized diet when you're pregnant is just so important. And perhaps it's allowing us to develop slightly new ways to rethink it and to develop personalized ways for making sure that we optimize health.
Mm. Now, let's talk about the, the good bugs and the bad bugs. Okay. Is it as clear cut as that? Or, or is there a kind I of wish. a greater nuance that I we wish. need to understand? I wish. Nothing <laughs> yeah, simple. Yeah, you're a good guy, you're a bad guy, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, so I think, I, think, I think we need to do away with this idea of good and bad bugs. That, that's not what happens. Mm -hmm. And that sort of marketing speak that's come from probiotic manufacturers <laughs> right. who are trying to simplify what is, which, you know, simplify what is a complex concept. The way I think about it is this, is that there are pathogens. So these are bugs that are going to do you harm no matter you know what, right? So SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that caused COVID-19, that was a pathogen. And if you got it, it was bad news, right? Mm. But th there are also microbes that we have, which are really very obviously mutualistic. So they're very beneficial. And we know that they have an evolutionary basis and that we know that we need to keep them in check. And then there are sort of bugs that sit in between what we might call amensalists. So these are bugs that if under the right circumstances, they're stressed enough or they are unhappy enough, they're going to cause the host harm without necessarily any real benefit to themselves. So I think about commensalists and pathogens and commensalists can be, you know, good or bad for us, depending on how much stress we put them under. Right. If I don't, if I don't feed you properly mm -hmm. and I don't let you drink enough you know, water, you will become very grumpy and very cross and very upset, right? Yep. And bugs are just the same, right? Right. If, if you, if, if you, if <laughs> okay. just the same, right? It, so they yeah. are, they are just trying to deal with an increasingly competitive and challenging environment and their response yeah. is a response to stress. So, so it's not good and bad. It's just the stress that uh -huh. we put our commensalists under and pathogens will always be pathogens and we need to eradicate them. Mm -hmm. But we also need to support our symbiont so that they can support yeah. us. I guess it's like having a bunch of fair weather friends. You know, when the yeah. going is good, they're all around you and happy to hang yeah. out. But, you know, the minute the proverbial hits the fan, it's like, okay, yeah. we're, 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 exactly we're going to change right. tack and yeah. <laughs> join yeah. a different club, maybe. So, exactly right. You've got to treat them right. Yeah, treat them right and they'll stay with you yeah. and they'll, they'll exactly look after right. you. When we talk about the, the bad guys, the pathogens there, you know, to what extent should we be afraid of bugs and germs? I mean, you, you know, you, you mentioned COVID there. I think the panic that set in and everybody, you know, scrubbing and bleaching and masking and, you know, all of this, not wanting to, you know, go anywhere near anybody or, you know, despite it kind of being an aerosolized virus. Yeah. Everybody got very fearful and there's still a legacy of that. And yet I remember talking to... Uh, a doctor who was working with the Sepsis Trust, seeing record cases of, of often, unfortunately, fatal sepsis and the breeding of superbugs because things are too clean. And he said to me, Liz, do not use a hand sanitizer. Seriously, it's one of the worst things that we could do. Simply wash your hands with soap and water. And he was a leading consultant in a major NHS hospital, you know, working on the front line. Yeah. You know, do, are we getting too clean? You know, what's the fear factor when it comes to bugs and germs in reality? Yeah. So I think I think there's two or three themes in that very important question. So, so I suppose my one take home is that bugs are not the enemy. If you look at all of the different types of varieties of strains of just bacteria, for example, on the planet Earth, there are probably millions and probably less than 1,500 cause human harm. And probably less than 400 are really transmissible. And a very small number will cause the sort of global pandemic, you know, once in a generation catastrophe that we experience with COVID. Mm. Now, 
sepsis does kill people. And on a professional level, sepsis is my nemesis. Sepsis as a surgeon is the one thing I fear most. Right. So of, of course, pathogens cause harm. And of course, we absolutely need to ensure that we uh, eradicate them. But what I would argue is that what we need to do is to eradicate them in a very precise way. We need a much more targeted way of killing bugs than we currently have. Now, the good news is that we have vaccines and we have ways of doing that and for preventing global you know, infectious disease crises. But we also have some very blunt tools and the blunt tools are antibiotics. Right. And the problem that we have is that antibiotics have been willfully misused. And they've been misused not just in healthcare and medicine, but they've been misused in farming. And that's brought with it a catastrophe of our own making, which is antimicrobial resistance. So what that means is, is that for the majority of the bugs that we need to treat in my clinical practice now, we can't treat them because the antibiotics that we have just don't work. So we've got this sort of parallel crisis. We've got a crisis of our own making, which is that the drugs don't work. And we've got a secondary crisis, which is that the strategy that we're on is ultimately generating a kind of burden of chronic disease that we talked about earlier, right? So your allergies, your asthmas, your, your, your inflammatory bowel diseases, your cancers, because, you know, we're still just trying to knock out and kill all bugs. We have no precision mm. in our approach for either the treatment of infection or the prevention of chronic disease. And that's what I mean. You've got to have a different strategy. You need, you've got to think a little bit more differently about it. Mm. What we also know, by the way, is that for those people who had less diverse microbiomes with COVID were much more likely to get more severe COVID and to get more sick. Mm. And we know that in a number of other diseases, we know that vaccines work differently in patients. You've got diverse microbiomes. Yeah. And we know that, you know, having a diverse ecosystem within is part of your natural defense. Mm -hmm. If you've got a bleached, dead barrier reef, you know, it's not going to protect the shoreline as well as a thriving, healthy barrier reef, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same in your gut. The microbiome, it, it protects our barriers and it's a really important part of our defense mechanism. And so it should be something that we think about routinely. So presumably we shouldn't then be just bleaching all our kitchen surfaces. I mean, if, if I looked under your sink in the kitchen cupboard, am, am I going to find, you know, bottles of bleach and Dettol, or are you, are you kind of taking a, a more measured view in keeping your, your own home clean? No. So if you came to my home, I'm very pleased to tell you it will be clean. And, <laughs> I don't uh, doubt that. Use, I was just wondering what you yeah, were using yeah. to clean it with. Uh, no, yeah. No, listen, I, I, I use the same things as everybody else. So, so it, it, to try and unpick a little bit of what you're asking, there, there was a sort of theory that came to sort of popular, I suppose, fruition in the kind of 90s. And it was called the oral gut hygiene hypothesis, which stated that there was an uptick in our risk of allergies and immune-mediated diseases because we were doing what you've described, mm -hmm. which is that we're staying too clean and we're not basically rolling our kids in the dirt. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why we're in that problem. So, so I think that that theory has largely been kind of, um, we, well, we've moved on from that theory. And, and, the, and the subtle evolution in the theory is actually what's important is the disappearing microbiome. It's this idea of Martin Blazer, who's a professor in New York, that actually we're just losing all of those key microbes at critical moments in our lives. And it's because of that that you don't have a healthy immune system that develops with you as you grow. Right. And, and the things that are driving that aren't just necessarily the use of bleach in your, in your household product. It's a sort of obsession towards the word is abiosis, like an obsession about living without any bacteria anywhere all of the time, that bugs are absolutely the enemy in all aspects of our life. 
and that actually, you know, the widespread misuse of antibiotics is a good thing because all bugs are bad. Right. And of course, that's just not how biology works. Mm. And then presumably exposing children, you talk about the different stages and the ages of the microbiome, which is fascinating. You know, the key times being, mm. you know, young people, children, infants, and then older people. These are the sort of two opportunities, I think, from what you're saying, that we get the, the most opportunity to make a difference. Presumably when we're young, exposing kids to different, you know, letting them catch coughs and colds and and develop a, a stronger immunity through that, an immune system. You know, I remember going to like chicken pox parties and all of that yeah. with, with with my kids, yeah. you know, deliberately to, to get them to catch these things because their immune system was strong and they would be able to fight it off quite quickly. And then they would develop immunity and, and be all the healthier for it. So you're completely right. But again, in, in the way that you phrase that, what you're talking about is pathogens. You're talking about exposure to pathogens that your immune system can develop a resistance to, right? Can develop a memory for. What I'm saying is, is that that same thing exists, but for symbionts. Right. That you've got to share those mutualistic microbes. And the way that you do that is very, very important. And if you don't do it right, the consequences can be quite dramatic. So the best evidence for that comes from antibiotic studies that have followed children longitudinally in their very early life, and also from epidemiological studies. And we absolutely know that children who have large doses of antibiotics in their childhood, and, and, and different antibiotics have different effects, mm -hmm. but they're more at risk of obesity, they're more at risk of type 2 diabetes, they're more at risk of asthma, they're more at risk of allergy, they're more at risk of inflammatory bowel disease, and a whole bunch of other chronic diseases because of it. But they're also at higher risk uh, we think, of neurodevelopmental problems. And that's where it yes. gets much, much more controversial. That's fascinating. I, I definitely want to to pick up on that, that gut-brain axis and, and mental health yeah. issues. Just give us some a glimmer of hope here. Uh, I know there'll be a lot of people listening who've had, obviously, periods of lots of heavy antibiotic use or perhaps haven't looked up after their gut and, and already experiencing a lot of digestive issues. Can we make a difference? You know, can we? And, and if we can, what are the steps that you think are the most profound? The, the good news is you can 100% make a difference. Few. Um, well, yeah, we know that. If you look at progressive countries that have been much better at regulating their antibiotic use, typically in Scandinavia, their burden of antimicrobial resistance genes goes down mm. and you can measure it. We know that if you, if you have you know, a lifestyle that optimizes the diversity of your gut and optimizes the function of, the, of those microbes, actually you can reverse some of those changes. So that's why you were just asking me about whether our children should be going to to parties to share exposure to pathogens. Well, our kids should absolutely be going to parties just to share symbionts. Like right. the, 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 the socialization of our children is extremely important mm. how their microbiome develops. So, so yeah, there are lots of little steps that you can take to, to change this. And I would also just say a really important message for your listeners is if you're sick with a pathogen that is a bacteria and your doctor says you need to take an antibiotic, take it because without it, you're going to come to harm and you're going to be seriously unwell. But if you're taking an antibiotic because you're sick, think carefully about the foods that you eat mm -hmm. and take a probiotic and take a prebiotic and do the things that you can that are simple, that improve the resilience of your gut in the face of that antibiotic. And then don't worry about right. it. What I'm talking about is predominantly actually antibiotics in farming use. Mm. Yep. So, for example, 80% of the world's antibiotics are actually used in farming. Yeah. They're actually used in so allowing us to sustainably feed 8 billion people, right? Mm. And they're, they're not used in healthcare. And, and if you are going to take an antibiotic and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, look, I want you to have this antibiotic, ask them, 
how do you know this is the right one for me? Mm-hmm. And what ex- what tests could we do to make sure that this is as specific as it needs to be for the bug that's causing yeah. my illness? So they can do some cultures and they can tell you. And we also know that not all antibiotics affect the gut microbiome in the same way. So if you're taking a little pen- a d- little dose of penicillin, actually your microbiome will be quite resistant to it. It will probably bounce back in around six weeks' time and you shouldn't worry too much about it. It's if you're taking very large doses of what we call broad-spectrum antibiotics and you're doing that recurrently, that Mm -hmm. tends to be the bigger problem. Right, and then put real effort. And I I think that's interesting, isn't it, that you take a probiotic and a prebiotic alongside your antibiotic. I think some people have thought, well, it's going to knock out and negate the effect of the antibiotic, but that's not the case, is it? It's going to support your gut. Not the case at all. And what we also know is that if if you're having a poor diet whilst you're sick, so when you're sick, like if you come into my hospital, sick patients will often have a big bottle of Lucozade next to them, oh. crisps, chocolates, okay. yeah, all this sort of <laughs> stuff, right? And and, um, and, your, and your heart just sinks because we yeah. know absolutely that if you're on a diet that's high in saturated fats, high in refined sugars, high in ultra processed foods, yeah. the antibiotics don't work as well. Right. And then that hammers your gut resilience as well. So diet and nutrition when you're sick is really, really important because it gives your bugs that level of resilience that they also need in the face of their own starvation and their own problems that they're also dealing with whilst you're unwell. Absolutely fascinating. Well, don't go away because when we come back, I want to pick up on that very interesting point that you made earlier, James, about the link between the microbiome and what's going on there and mental health. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
So let's talk about the gut-brain axis. And, you know, why would it be true that those with inflammatory bowel disease and other chronic gut diseases have higher rates of mental health problems than the rest of the population? Well, that's a very interesting question. One, I think it's fair to say that we're still trying to answer. I mean, I think if any of your listeners suffer from any of these conditions, they'll tell you that they're not very nice. Mm. And simply having these conditions inflicts a degree of, you know, psychological trauma that quite often explains why someone might feel depressed or anxious or have mental health problems. But at the same time, there is a sort of debate that the same processes that drive the causation of these diseases also influence the development of the brain and how the brain functions. And therefore, the question is being asked, is there a common mechanism that explains these two things? And are they causally related? And what we think of one argument, or at least one hypothesis, is that if a microbiome is really important in educating your immune system, for example, and if we know that neuroinflammation, so inflammation of the nervous system, if you like, is really important in the causation of these mental health problems, as well as this kind of immune program being important for the development of a healthy gut, is therefore the microbiome perhaps the source of all of these problems? And is it that this microbiome is being perhaps interrupted in its core moments of its development in early life? Mm. And does that explain why we're seeing this burden of these kind of parallel diseases? Wow. And, and I, think, I think they're related is what I think. And are the your fellow psychiatrists yes. <laughs> agreeing with you on this? I think it's a really uh, contentious topic, yeah. and I think the most, I think the greatest contention is for neurodevelopmental problems like autism spectrum right. condition and yeah. conditions where you know there's been a lot of anxiety around having discussions about causation and that's for a number of reasons first of all it's because for many people who are neurodiverse it's not a disease it's a superpower right it's something that they mm -hmm. you know that, yeah. that actually is part of their personality they don't want it to and, be seen as a negative is, or, or, or an issue you know or, or exactly an illness. right no exactly right mm. and, and the second is there's quite a strong camp that believes that these are actually inherited and familial and genetically driven mm -hmm. but what we absolutely know for sure is that kids who've got autism or who've got who sit on that spectrum somewhere mm. don't have the same guts as neurotypical children they are different and they are really different at a microbial level definitely uh, but also at a functional level and many children will describe uh, a gut dysfunction as part of their presentation right. around the age of five or six and what we know is that their microbiomes are also very different functionally so they produce different amounts of neurotransmitters and what's interesting is that you can take feces from a kid who's got autism and you can put it into an animal model, so a mouse that's susceptible to autism, and it will trigger those symptoms in the animal. And then you can put the feces from a neurotypical child into the same animal and they go away again, they get better. Wow. But what's most interesting is that this window to do that is finite. If you do that after these animals have been weaned, it's not possible. Those changes then, they become very fixed. And we see similar, we see similar, um, similar, I see we, we have the grass sort of green shoots of evidence in human data from fecal transplant trials in kids with autism that actually you can change some of these behaviors, not all of them, but some of them, and that there are, may even be individual strains, so particular types of probiotics, which are now increasingly being referred to as psychobiotics, might also have an important function in, in determining how the brain works. 
So, so it's an exciting area of development, but Isn't again, it? we're, we're pretty early. We're pretty early. And I'm obviously not going to hold you to this as being an exact science, but what sort of age are we talking about up until you say that that window, there is a window of opportunity? Yeah. I mean, are we talking infancy or like up until early teens? What's well, the gap? One, one, one school of thought is, I, I think I, I would probably answer this question in one of two ways. So one school of thought is it's up until the age that the microbiome is kind of set into its adult construct, right? So, uh, but also up until the age when the brain has kind of fi finished its development. So about the age of three to five, it's going to be a bit variable. But the, the bigger question here is, well, okay, if you understand the mechanism, can you engineer it in some way? Can you, can you make it susceptible? Is there something that you can do to go in and, 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 and to change it? And, and, and I think that's a more interesting question. And that's why you're seeing such interest in fecal transplantation. If you make a wholesale change in the ecology of someone's gut, does that meaningfully change their risk mm. of or their experience of a condition that's that that definitely is a more interesting question but we, we i think it's still too early to really give an answer to that mm. so in theory we could be looking at a future where cases of severe mental health illness could be fixed with a fecal transplant and a few probiotic supplements <laughs> I, I i like the idea of that i mean i think i think we have to be pragmatic though which is to say that of course Many people experiencing these conditions have very significant other causes that are going to be important, right? Now, those might be anything from traumatic events that have happened that have got really nothing to do with the microbiome or, you know, complex social um, situations, drugs, addiction, these sorts of things may or may not be connected to the microbiome. And, and of course, it's very important to remember those and to understand that these sorts of conditions always require a holistic approach. Sure. So the way I would phrase it is, is that for me... Neuroinflammation is the real, is the mechanism, right? And the microbiome is important because it pulls the strings on neuroinflammation. And therefore, the microbiome is like the missing gear in the engine that explains it. You've got to know how the whole engine runs, and you can't do that with understanding, you know, what the gearbox does. So the, think of the microbiome as a gearbox, and all of these other things are still super important, but you've got to have an understanding of it to really properly fix these really complicated problems. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, you talk there about social situations and our gut microbiome can even, you say, I saw it in your book, affect who we choose as a partner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the abstract, that sounds a bit balmy. Can you explain why that might be the case? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly can. There's a couple of reasons why I think it is. I mean, of course, we all freely make choices, at least I hope we do, about, about the partners that we choose. But the microbiome is very important for influencing our social signaling because it influences how we smell. It influences what we look like. It influences how we react to social situations. Mm. And this came from some interesting experiments that were done in fruit flies. And fruit flies' ability to make can be severely influenced by giving them a single dose of an antibiotic. And, and that works because it knocks down one important bug that makes uh, pheromones in that animal. And if it doesn't have them, it simply mm. cannot mate. And then okay. if you introduce the strain, then of course it, it can start to mate again. Right. But I think the, the the other kind of really important or more interesting area is this idea that microbes play an important part in determining how androgens work. So androgens are sex hormones. Your listeners will know them as testosterone or progesterone or estrogen, for example. Mm. And microbes seem to be very important in determining their effect. So uh, that obviously when you're a teenager is super important because they're surging. But it might also be really important in later life when we try mm. and understand why women in particular, for example, get particular diseases associated with uh, the menopause. 
yes. uh, or how women particularly experience symptoms of contraception, so the contraceptive pill. And of course, it is important in determining our sexual health. Actually, sexual health is a good example of what I was talking about earlier. We think about sexual health purely in terms of pathogens. We think about sexually transmitted diseases, and of course, they're a really big and important healthcare problem, but we don't think about the sexual microbiome, and it's important in maintaining our sexual health and how important it is to have a diverse uh, um, sexual microbiome as a kind of basic measure of health and what we might need to do to support it. Fascinating. You talk there about the microbiome influencing hormone levels. You know, we talk a lot about hormones, particularly perimenopause and menopause here on, on this show. What's the connection then, in your view, between certain symptoms of the menopause? And I'm thinking like, you know, vaginal issues, UTIs, bacterial vaginosis, you know, and what's going on in the vaginal microbiome that's being upset at around times of hormonal change in the microbiome? So I think you have to, again, think quite holistically about the role that microbes might have in determining how hormones work. So what we know is that microbes affect the availability and the functions of those hormones because they break them down, if you like, and control how much is circulating around the system. But you also need to think that, uh, as I mentioned at the top of this conversation, that you've got lots of different niches of microbes all around your body which all communicate. And the vaginal microbiome is incredibly important. Uh, so what we know is that in young women, a microbiome in the vagina, which is lactobacilli dominant, is a biomarker of health. And it prevents it, if you like it, it, it protects you against sexually transmitted infections. But it also is very important in determining your risk of infertility. And your, vi and your vaginal microbiome changes as you age. And what we know, again, is that in postmenopausal women, that this seems to be an important player in determining some of the uh, symptoms that you experience. And what we don't know yet is what to do about it. So there is a lot of interest in, for example, whether or not you can create vaginal probiotics or even vaginal transplants, so vaginal microbiota transplants, to try and reset the vaginal microbiome so that you can minimize the risk of experiencing these symptoms. And we're starting to see the first trials in this, uh, in this field published. I think it's a really important mediator, actually. But again, we just need more data, really, before we can say anything with 100% certainty. Very interesting. And, you know, you talk there about influencing hormones. Would it be the case then that the microbiome can play a role in determining the effectiveness of HRT? You know, do we need our good gut bugs to get the most out of, you know, transdermal estrogen? So my feeling is, is that it is important that it does have a big impact on, on determining how HRT works, but also your risk of having complications or or side effects from HRT. But what I would say, and I would caveat that by saying, is that we don't have really good trial data mm. yet to support that. So this is a really emerging area of, of science. But to me, it's entirely intuitive and it would make completely logical sense. Yeah, and presumably for guys too, you know, going through a, a, a phase in midlife, perhaps when their testosterone levels are, are dipping, you know, is this something that could be supported, you know, by having a glass of caffeine oh, in yeah. the morning? <laughs> Well, it 100% is. But again, so it really is. And we've got reasonably good data for that, actually. And if you the, probably the one thing I would say is that you need to, again, think about this in the kind of broader context. So, for example, I'll give you one example of that. Right. So obesity. So obese mm. men have higher rates of infertility. Right. And we don't really understand right. why. And that and again, the reasons for that might be there. There are multiple reasons why that might be. But one example is that obese men, they metabolize bile differently, right? So bile is that green mm. juice that you 
that you might have recognized that you've been sick a lot, right? Which is really important mm-hmm. in your stomach because it helps you emulsify fat. And, and bugs are very, very important in determining how bile acids work. And obese males don't have the same bugs as lean males and they metabolize bile differently. Bile is really important for absorbing vitamin A and for the production of vitamin A, which is really important for making semen. And so again, Gosh. it's that sort of, it's that, it's that, if you like, that flow chart, that sort of sequence of events. Yeah. And, and, and again, the microbiome is super important for regulating the bioavailability of testosterone. And again, mm. if you're, you know, if you're a male and you're thinking, gosh, how do I get my testosterone uh, back to where I want it to be? Actually, you need to think more holistically about your health. Mm-hmm. And that's why the microbiome is important. Yeah, it's not just rubbing on a bit more testim gel. It's actually, you know, looking at I really muscle would, yeah, mass. Yeah, don't and... do that. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And And I think there's a lot of young men out there at the moment who are really worried, who are being conned by you know, companies measuring testosterone mm. levels and worrying men into thinking their testosterone levels are low. And actually, I think they shouldn't be worrying about it quite as much as they are. And actually, they should be thinking more holistically about their health. I know that one of your areas of study is the role of the gut microbiome in the etiology of colon cancer. What's the research telling us now about any connection, you know, between the microbiome and, and cancer generally? When we started trying to study the microbiome and cancer, what we were hoping was that we would find one bug that unlocked everything. Like we could do some classic reductionist 19th century science, you know, just and prove that one bug was the problem to all of our, you know, cancer-related challenges. And and that's not what we found. What we have found is that people who have cancer have a very different microbiome to those that don't. We found that bugs turn up in all weird and wonderful places. So not only do they live within cancers, but they spread with cancers as they spread. So we find them in distant metastases. We found that cancer resistance to cancer therapy can be mediated by bugs. So how effective your drugs are if you have cancer care is determined by the microbes that you have within you. Fascinating. And that microbes play a really critical role in the development of new drugs. So what we think is happening, or at least what I think is happening, if you want to understand a disease like bowel cancer, is first of all, that epidemiology of bowel cancer is changing. It's changing really in a really worrying way. So young people, so millennials and, and people younger than millennials, have a bowel cancer risk that's four times that of someone born in the 1960s really? or 1970s. Four times greater. Yeah. What four is times. driving so that? <laughs> well, Exactly. I really want to know the answer to that. So yeah. we are we we are struggling to understand this. And the way I explain it is that I think there are kind of three hits that explain this. I think the first hit is that the microbiome is just simply not primed during um during conception and during gestation. So all of that orchestral signaling that I was telling you about mm. in the beginning isn't signaling right. So what we know is that mothers for example who are obese are much more likely to have children that go on to get bowel cancer. Gosh. The second thing is that I think I think there's a miss there's the, the microbiome in early life is not being it's not being set up to succeed, which means that the immune system isn't really set up to prevent an individual from getting cancer, but it's also not set up to deal with the kind of the modern urban environment and most of us live in urban environments. And what that means is that then over 20 to 30 years of high fat, you know, high sugar, ultra processed food based diets, uh, over antibiotic consumption, we absolutely know, for example, from epidemiological studies that young women given um, doses of antibiotics, for example, are more likely to get bowel cancer. 
um, that these things then happen, they happen, if you like, uh, on top of each other. One event happens on top of the other. And that leads to, you know, a, a mutation event that happens in a polyp, which leads to a bowel cancer. And the problem that we've had is a lot of microbiome studies are studying cancer. And, and, and that's too late. If you want to understand causation, the horse has already bolted. So a lot of the more interesting studies at the moment are doing longitudinal analyses and trying to understand populations over time and how those, if you like, gene environment microbiome interactions linked together to cause cancer. It's absolutely fascinating and, and, and mind blowing. And, and I guess moving on from that, you know, we do hear a lot about the gut brain axis. Yeah, I'd like to just look at your thoughts on how strong that connection is. I'm thinking about issues like stroke, for example, yeah. you know, can the activity of the microbiome predict stroke severity? Yeah, it kind of blows my mind that it can. And it's kind of blows my mind that we find bugs in the clots that form in the brain. And there is a real question, which is how and why uh, are they there? And what do they tell you about your risk of your risk of stroke? So what I would say is that I think the gut brain connection is very real. I think it's very sophisticated and I think it's very, very complicated. But I think, again, if you come back to a condition like stroke, which you've kind of raised, the reason that you can predict stroke based on your or the type of microbes you have in your gut is because a lot of the functions of those microbes drive a lot of the inflammatory processes which cause stroke. Uh, but they also determine your response to treatment. So we know that if you have a high fiber diet and you have lots of diverse microbes in your ecosystem, your risk of stroke goes down. And that goes down because you have less inflammation. Very, It's kind of an oversimplification, that, but that's basically mm -hmm. it. Uh, and we also know that when, when, if you do have a stroke and you have a high fiber diet, the medicines that we give you are much more likely uh, to work. Mm. So we can measure specific discrete functions of those microbes in people that have had strokes, and we can work out how likely they are to survive the stroke. And we can also make predictions about how severe that stroke will be. And, and we're starting to see the same thing in lots of other neuro, uh, neurological conditions. So particularly neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's. Really? Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mm. dementia? Yes, That's absolutely exactly. fascinating. Okay, let's finish with some positives, hopefully. Uh, okay. With all this knowledge, um, we've already established that your kitchen is super clean, but not necessarily yes. super bleached. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering how much of your own kind of lifestyle and eating habits, you know, have changed in recent years as as you've learned more. What are the little changes that you've made, you know, perhaps for you and your family along the way that are takeaways that, you know, we could perhaps think about implementing? Sure. So, so one of the things that I tried to do in the writing of this book was to explain that uh, I'm just as human as any of your listeners. And I think when you're trying to live in 2023 in a world which is almost entirely stacked up against the microbiome, it's really hard. Mm. Like you can know the right thing to do, but actually doing it is really, really difficult. But having said that, I did become vegetarian because I just felt that actually eating meat was really bad for the microbiome. And that was something I wanted to stop. I, I do fall off the wagon occasionally, so I'm not a vegan mm. and I don't, you know, if I go to a friend's house and they cook me meat, I will eat it, mm -hmm. but I try and exclude it from my diet. I try and exclude all refined sugars and, and I yeah. really try to reduce the amount of ultra processed foods that That's I consume. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. d d basically delete your food delivery app and try right. and prepare as, as much food, of your own food. As in, as in like, fast like food. takeaways. It's fast yeah. food. But even, yeah. but I think even if you're ordering, you know, a salad by takeaway, mm. it's problematic. Yeah, and it's problematic because 
It's probably wrapped in plastic, mm -hmm. um, which is not great for the microbiome. But that's for the next podcast. Yes, um, please. And it's yeah. it's it's also it's also um, you're not preparing it yourself, which means you're not physically getting your hands dirty, mm. and it also means you're not you know walking to the shops to get it. Yeah. And it also means you're not sharing your food. Right. So, so I think, and I mean that, like I, what I've yeah. tried to do, I'm a middle-aged man, right? So I'm trying to reconnect with my friends to be yeah. more social. I'm trying to de-digitize my life and to try to prioritize a physical connectivity because I think that's a very important way of shaping the diversity of our microbes. You can also get a pet. I've got Excellent. lots of pets. I have a daughter that's pet obsessed. Really? So we have, we've got two guinea pigs, a hamster, a cat, and a dog. They're very good ways of, of, of making it. a diverse microbiome. And bring your plants into your house and try mm -hmm. and really properly connect with nature. Like my kids, all my kids are vaccinated. And most of my kids, you know, will own, they will, I mean, actually being a, and most doctors will say this, but being the child of a doctor is usually a bad prognostic indicator because they have to be so sick for me to get right. <laughs> so they, you know, but but we're quite we're quite clear. Like they've got to really be on desktop before they yes. get antibiotic. Yeah, you know, we we do try and just be mindful. But I think the way perhaps is the best way of summarising it. The way I think of this is is that we're experiencing an internal climate crisis. Most people understand, you know, what that means externally for the planet. They know that the planet's getting too hot, and they also know that the solutions to those problems require cultural and social and behavioral change right at a large level. Mm. So that might mean you can do a bit of recycling, mm -hmm. but actually, you know, we also need effective healthcare policy. And Absolutely. that means that where you shop and how you buy your mm -hmm. foods and the choices, the consumer choices that you make yeah. are very powerful. So you should be asking, where is your meat coming from? Absolutely. What antibiotics in its preparation yeah, yeah. And, and, and where and when, right? And and I think we need to think more more like that when it comes to our health. Mm. We are experiencing an internal climate crisis, and we should be lobbying and demanding more from our regulators and our policymakers. And my last thing is is that I believe I believe that the maternal microbiome should be a basic human right mm. because I believe that if you don't set that up properly, that the kids are set on a pathway to disadvantage from which they may never be able to escape. And it's the basis of absolutely everything. So, so again, I think if you start to rethink the value of the microbiome by prioritizing it in that way, then then you're able to have a, a different kind of conversation. James, absolutely brilliant. You've taken a subject that I thought I knew a bit about onto a whole other level and very thought provoking. And it's really great to keep this conversation going. And yes, please come back and let's talk about plastics. That would be great, especially the impact on our gut health. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a treat. Well, what a fascinating and detailed look at what is really going on inside and outside our bodies. James, again, thank you so much for your time. And I think this is a conversation that is going to run and run, isn't it? As we just pull out even more detail. You know, who knew that even before we're born, we're making these really important changes and developments to our microbiome. And, you know, given my particular love of the gut, there's a lot more reading up that you can do. There's a lot of it, a lot of free stuff actually over on lizardwellbeing.co.uk. There's a whole section on gut health. And that's also the place, by the way, if you want to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. That is jam-packed, full of tips for living well. Lots on fermented foods and probiotics and all of that. In fact, also, if you head over to the Lizard Wellbeing YouTube channel, you'll find various clips that I've recorded over the years, making things like kefir, kombucha, kimchi, all of that. Well, next week, do you ever let fear 
hold you back from what you'd like to achieve? Who would you like to be? Well, you can join me and Trini Woodall as we chat about how to combat fear in midlife. And I'll tell you now that in just a couple of weeks, we'll also be looking even more closely at the gut-brain axis and how what we eat could be affecting our anxiety. Really important, especially over the festive season. Well, maybe you'd like to listen to these episodes ad-free. When you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee, you'll get all the episodes without ads and 24 hours earlier than everyone else too. So do go and check that out if that appeals to you. And until the next time then, go well. Goodbye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.